0: I'm Louise Goodman, and you're listening to the fantastic Cut
2: to the Race podcast. Hello, my name is John Milander, and you're listening to the Formula Nerds podcast.
0: Hi, I'm Rosanna Tennant, and you are listening to the incredible Cut to the Race podcast. Hi, I'm Jordan King, and you're listening to Formula Nerds podcast. Hi, I'm Croppy.
1: You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out,
0: and away we go.
1: And welcome to the Cut to the Race podcast. We are back today with another special guest. It's just me and
0: James Phillips today. James, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, sir. Thank you for having me for today. And uh, yeah, it's great to be here.
1: So today's going to be quite a techie episode. Now, we don't often get very technical guests on the show, so I'm extremely excited for this one. Uh, James, would you like to do the honours and introduce our guest?
0: Certainly. So we're joined today by one of uh, F1's unsung behind the scenes heroes if you like um, a career spanning with 18 years for cosworth uh, we're talking to the person who helped design and run the cosworth uh, v10 and v8 engines bashed as ford so ford well cosworth powered several teams during the 1990s and early 2000s uh, including michael schumacher's famous benetton b194 powered by a ford cosworth v10 engine so matt grant welcome to the show thank you very much for joining us how are you today
2: Hello, James. Hello, Ollie. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yeah, excellent. Thank you. Um, I should say I love the name of your uh, of your podcast, Formula Nerds, because I am a self confessed uh, Formula One super nerd. So uh, hopefully you, you can ask me some statistical questions, and I'll I'll do my best to answer them as well. So uh, yeah,
1: <laughs> that's that's good. We we've had a few Formula Nerds, but I th- I think you may tick this one. Oh uh, oh yeah, <laughs> this
2: one very well. <laughs> Sadly, I will. Yes.
0: Oh, brilliant. So. You left Cosworth in 2013, having been on the grid for, as you say, over 18 years. You went to Moditech, which is an engineering consultancy uh, that supplies the components for these engines, so these really historic cars can carry on running. Yeah, yeah. Our first question, effectively, is about the design process for these cars, so and these engines. So, you were a senior engine designer for Cosworth when you first arrived there in the tail end in 1996. At a very high level, can you just explain the process and thinking when designing an F1 engine? a V10 Yeah, V8? sure. I, um,
2: it's it's changed massively since since I started in 96. Um, And I should say, you know, when I started, it was all drawing boards. So we were all uh, given a a drawing board. uh, And so there was probably 30 designers in the sort of downstairs offices. uh, And there was one CAD box in the corner, which if you were good, you were allowed to use, you know, at, at night. Um, and so to design an engine on a drawing board is very different to how it's done today in 3D. Um, obviously, because you're drawing in two dimensions and you have to try and think in 3D, but get it down on 2D. Um, but in terms of the, the process, it hasn't changed. In terms of how you, you, know, you go about designing an engine, what you think about, it's still the same. Um, you normally would start with the combustion chamber. Uh, and that you know that's where you know, it's all going to happen. So that's the thing you focus on to start with, um, and then normally everything else will drop out from that. It's it's in Formula One um, is unique in the sense that it's the rules are very prescriptive, and you can only do certain things. It tells you what the bore size is and the V angle and number of cylinders, and and it's kind of been like that for the last. Uh, I don't know, maybe 10, 15 years. Um, when I started, it was a free for all almost. It was almost anything goes. So you were given a sweat volume. I think the rule said the pistons had to be circular. Um, but, but that was it in terms of there was no minimum weight. There wasn't any mit- restriction on materials. There was a, I think there was probably a, a fuel tank capacity limit, but there was probably more than enough fuel and there was no limit on speed. So it was a great time to be involved with Formula One because you could come up with the most crazy ideas uh, and they would find their way onto an engine, into a race. Um, but yeah, so going back to, to how you, you lay out an engine, it's still, you know, you start with a combustion chamber, as I said. Um, and it, again, if you look the way it's, it's evolved from the One, you know, when I started again in the right up to 2013, it was a normally aspirated engine with no speed limit. So it was all about getting the most amount of air into the engine uh, and then matching it with the corresponding amount of fuel um, setting fire to it, getting rid of it as quick as you can. That was the philosophy, you know, behind those aspir- normally aspirated engines, which is why, you know, we eventually got to 20,000 RPM because, you know, the more speed you can run at, the, the better. The corresponding effect of that, though, is that the, uh, the friction goes up with speed as well. So there's a whole lot of effort to reduce friction, um, which we might come to later. And also to keep the thing together, so the torsional resonances of all the components is one of the things that stop you from from going too fast. So you come up with clever ways to overcome that, to break through certain speeds. Um, and then once, once you've done your, your uh, sort of layout, I guess, of, of the combustion chamber, and nowadays there's uh, lots of really clever simulation programs you can use to do that. Um, we talk about one-dimensional programs, um, but there's also CFD, which is computational fluid dynamics, uh, and they combine together to create um, sort of uh, simulations of, of combustion. So you can model it exactly as you like. Um, once you've done that, you can then use more simulation tools to tell you what the bore and stroke is going to be if the rules haven't told you. Uh, and then it, it just grows out from there, really. Once you know the, the size of the bore, you, you know what the size of the water jacket needs to be. So you start scheming that and then you look at how the oilways are going to get fed to critical components. Uh, and the engine just kind of grows outwards almost, if you like, you know, you, you start to, you know, build up an idea of what the the head and the block are going to look like. You start to scheme out the rod and the crank. Uh, and you look at where you're going to put the pumps uh, and how you're going to drive them. And, and after maybe two, three weeks, you've pretty got a pretty solid scheme of what the engine's like. Uh, and then you can just start to, to home in on each part and start to design them in detail. Um, we use a, a top-level down approach. Most people use that in their design. So you lay out the, the basics in CAD, a sort of wireframe or points, and then you start just to, to use, everyone uses the same you know scheme um, to model their parts. Uh, and hopefully uh, after sort of three to four months everyone's got models of parts that can start to be drawn up and manufactured so it's it's um it's a very iterative process uh you also if you're lucky enough you know that's the great thing from working at Cosworth is that you've got to see previous designs you saw what worked what didn't work and when i started in 96 you know Cosworth had been in Formula One for 30 years at least you know so there was 30 years of formula one engine experience plus a whole load of other stuff from indycar wrc you know it was it was everywhere so if you didn't know how you know how much how, how small to make a conrad bolt so you could look at a previous engine and do the sums and say well that survived with those loads and we're going to run these loads that's that's how big we'll make it so you, you kind of learn from experience um and the other great thing about Cosworth was that you were taught uh, a lot of. It was kind of informal training, if you like, but um, we called it Design for Manufacture and Assembly, DFMEA, which, um, which, or sorry, DFMA, which was uh, basically design something so it can be made. So we can all create shapes that nobody can machine or nobody can assemble. Um, Cosworth had a great team of production engineers and engine builders, and you could just go and speak to them and say, "Why." Well, I'm designing a crankshaft. How, how do you machine it? How do you grind it? Or you know, making you know a feature, a tapped hole feature. What tools do you have in stock? Because you know, we can, we can specify all sorts of funny threads, but if they can't get a hold of the tool, then uh, it's never going to get manufactured. And that kind of grows into the um, making the, the the engine easier to build, which makes it more reliable because you have less mistakes. So it, it's uh, it's one of those things. If you get right to start with you definitely um we keep the benefits um and then it, it kind of um where we got to the point of you know Designing everything, having standards that everybody works to. We even had, um, when I started at Cosworth, we spent two weeks, uh, I guess, as as trainees, no matter who you were. So, you spent a week in engine build, building engines alongside engine builders. So, you appreciated what bits didn't fit. And then you spent a week on the drawing board doing what they call the drawing board course. Uh, So, even though I'd I'd, um, studied technical drawing in my exams uh so i thought i was a fairly good draftsman um they make you write the alphabet out over and over again until it matches everyone else's alphabet <laughs> which is uh wow. which is crazy but when you think about it that's you know that's why all the drawings look the same mm. uh and in cad you kind of spoiled because it just does it for you but uh we had to learn the hard way um so yeah so that, that's that's how you go about it really it, it's not i wouldn't say it's not rocket science not literally anyway but there is an awful lot of understanding of a lot of subjects to, to do. So you have to understand thermodynamics and you have to understand, you know, um, stress analysis and, and all sorts of other things. It's it's, it's it's quite a, it requires quite a broad range of skills
1: i mean it, it to me it doesn't sound far off rocket science right as a as a non-technical guy <laughs> but um power units yeah. today where you know the, the deals they're announced so far in advance you know years in advance um and i assume that's because the engine's got to fit the car or the car's got to fit the engine um how does that sort of process work and and how do you go about right okay we've got an engine how do we get it in the car or is it how do you mm. get get the car to fit the engine What, what how does that sort of process work
2: <clears throat> it, it depends on i guess it depends on the relationship with the team to start with um if they're a customer team it, it, it's almost a case where you tell them what they're going to get which doesn't sound doesn't sound great but you almost have to say this is the engine this is the you know um this is what it's going to be like you have to design your car around that, you know, without without being rude and without um wanting to um to put them out of business. But you have to sort of be quite harsh, I think, in some regards. Um, so we would give them uh, sets of insulation drawings, um, saying this is how, but this is what the engine looks like. This is where the mounting points are, uh, and then we'd tell them, you know, the what oil and water temperatures we need, so they then size the radiators accordingly. And you you'd have to work. You know you'd work together with them, but you'd almost have to say this is what it is. If it's a works team, which again, uh, you know, obviously a number of teams have become works teams, there's more of an open relationship, and you start to work with the team to define those parameters. So, if you think back to when Cosmos supplied Jaguar Racing, there was an awful lot of involvement of the team in defining the engine, and vice versa. So, we would go to the to Jaguar Racing, we say, "Well, this is the shape of the um, the air box, which is the trumpet tray." In most people call it trumpet tray. Um, um, they'd say, "Well, that's going to stick out of the bodywork, so you know we'll have to do a dyno test to trim down the trumpet tray to make sure we don't lose power because um, they don't want lots of ugly blisters on the side of their bodywork." So, so there's a lot of uh, toing and froing. It, it comes more lengthy. But it's equally, you know, that's that's where you know teams like Ferrari are going to benefit because they have everyone under one roof. They can just do that all the time.
0: Now that we've heard that, I mean, it's interesting just to talk about the cars that race with the Cosworth engine. So '97 yeah. was your first season, you know, when when in terms of being on the Formula One grid, Tyrrell and Stewart and Minardi were the teams that had the engine. Was the intention to make Stewart a works team from the from the, from the off? Because Stewart you worked with very closely, uh, and we'll get to just how close that relationship got later, but was the intention always to work closely with Stewart, and was the relationship the same with the other two teams?
2: I, I guess I kind of started as, you know, Stewart had already been nominated as the works team, um, so when I started, but I think it definitely was the case that Jackie Stewart had done a, a, a deal with Ford, uh, managed to convince them that he was the right person to run uh, their, you know, their works operation effectively, uh, and that, that's understandable, you know, given their relationship that they had, uh, and given that you know it was it was a fresh start, if you like, you know, it wasn't buying into an existing team, it was a fresh start in Milton Keynes in, in what is today Red Bull, so you can almost understand why Ford wanted to do it, um, you know, as a as a their works team with Jackie leading it and Paul Stewart, you know, also, and and I guess, you know, Jackie and Paul could point to their success they had in the lower categories. Um, And they brought on some great people into their, into their team. Um, You know, the people like uh, Alan Kinz, the chief designer, you know, people that had that huge amount of experience. So, so the, to Ford's risk, I guess, was fairly low. Um, And from an engine side, uh, Cosworth supplied them the, the JD engine as it was called so it's their first V10 in its second year so so it, again it, it wasn't a much of a risk as starting out completely from scratch which is what you know we'll see teams like Audi possibly do um it was uh it was you know taking an existing engine uh and taking some experienced Formula One people to design the car around it
0: well what was interesting about that as well was of course Stewart bought Cosworth didn't they uh, did, uh not Stewart ford should i say what cosworth yeah, the, the, yeah. The, they had a really he had the stewart had a very difficult season second season in 98 because they scored a podium of course in monaco in 97 which was a really fantastic result with uh, with rubens Barrichello. Yeah. when did you find out that ford were also buying cosworth itself um and did that change how you were interacting with the teams and your customer teams during the 99 se- during the 99 season as you prepared for 2000
2: yeah, I have to point out that uh unofficially I, I always view that as a win because Schumacher was disqualified from that season. So I always think Barrichello finished second, but uh but Schumacher was disqualified from the okay. season. So a win's a win, isn't it? Um but yeah, it was it was quite um it was quite a stressful time really because there were always rumors of of uh, Cosworth being sold. Um and if you go you go back to the history of Cosworth, um uh, Keith Duckworth and Mike Costin sold uh the company in the early 90s to, I think they were called Carlton or UEI, who were kind of an entertainment based company. They then sold it to Vickers, uh, who have a huge um, engineering firm uh, owning a lots of, of companies like Cosworth. Um, and there were always rumors that Vickers were going to sell because, you know, that they're kind of affected by all sorts of other factors um, as well as, you know, just racing. So, uh we were always kind of thinking oh okay we might be sold soon and obviously we'd had uh ford were a customer you know up to that point we'd had a, a couple bad years with the in 97 98 uh the engine wasn't as strong as it as it could be it definitely wasn't as reliable as it could be I always cringe when I hear people talking about the, you know, the, the '98 season. You know, engines blowing up. I think, yeah, I, I, I was there. I was working on those parts, <laughs> trying to stop them from blowing up. Um, so, 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 yeah, it, it, kind of came to a head. Um, I think Fickers decided they wanted to sell. Audi actually stepped in and said, "Well, we're going to buy the entire Cosworth um, factories, everything," uh, which uh, I think probably annoyed Ford because Ford a customer i think Ford had declared if somebody if another oem had owned cosworth they would pull out of well they'd certainly pull all of the work out of cosworth so they were very annoyed with that um and that kind of forced their hand so i think for about six weeks we were owned by audi and then ford came along and, and purchased the racing side and split the company in two um and and from then on really it was very much you know we are now part of ford um, which I have to say, I know a lot of people have disagreements and say, "Oh, it was the worst thing ever to happen." Actually, I think it was a brilliant thing to happen for Cosworth because there was a huge amount of investment. So, um, you know, we we saw the number of pool cars go up. Uh, suddenly, we had ten brand new Ford Focus pool cars, for example. Yeah, okay. you know, they just they they definitely invested heavily into Cosworth.
1: And um, what were your thoughts on on how things progressed under the the Jaguar name, and then also um, a a small company we've all heard of called Red Bull taking over? You know, what what were your thoughts on that? And I mean, I I guess hindsight's a wonderful thing. You know, looking at it now compared to at that time.
2: Yeah, it's fascinating that the amount of interest that people have still with Jaguar, and even though I think they had a couple podiums, I don't think they definitely didn't win a race, obviously, and they definitely weren't the quickest. Uh, at any one point, but it is such a brilliant looking car. You know, we have occasionally I don't know, we'll come to it later, but in my day job now I get to help people out with running those cars and they look fantastic. You know, the the green and the white uh paint work and uh they just they look, you know, like they should have done better than they did. And it's always interesting, you know, when you think back why was it such a, uh, why were the results so bad when Red Bull, you know, within four or five years, you know, were suddenly world champions and winning back-to-back championships? Um, and, and I think for us, we, we, as Cosworth, we were great because we could see what was happening from the outside um, and we could see how uh, how Ford's ownership of, of uh, Jaguar Racing probably wasn't um or certainly the way the way they ran it probably wasn't the best way you know to run a racing team especially when you looked at how ferrari for example you know who were dominating were being run um and i think Ford get a lot of stick for for that period i actually think it was a great thing for them to do to try and to have a go you know to turn stuart grand prix into jaguar racing um what people don't realize is that ford place a lot of engineers uh through both Cosworth and Jaguar racing. So they came in uh to help out. You know, they didn't they weren't in senior management positions. They were there as designers or helping us, you know, run the run cars at the track. Um, and and Ford's uh, you know reason for that was because they wanted to learn about racing, learn about how they could benefit from how companies go racing to try and improve what they did. So you can it kind of makes sense, you know, why Ford wanted to do that. I, is it? And I, I hear, you know, I hear Gary Anderson, example, you know, saying about how Ford, you know, ran Jagger into the ground, and how it wasn't the way to do it. And I, and I kind of sympathise with him a little bit. I never realised he, one of his things he said recently was that um, Cosworth was protected. You know, we were the, you know, the, the Blue Eyed Boys, if you like. We were looked after, and I suppose there probably is an element of truth in that because of Ford's relationship with Cosworth beforehand. Um, but certainly, so so from looking on the outside, you kind of you see this revolving door of of management at Jaguar Racing. I think in the five years they existed, they probably had four or five team principals and probably the same number of um, of technical directors. So you know we were constantly talking to different technical directors. I think when I first started, it was Gary. Gary got uh, replaced with I can't remember who. Um, but there was a rumours of, of Adrian Newey, obviously Adrian Newey for a couple of weeks, and then Stephen Nichols, and then uh, it, it constantly changed. And I think, and I, I was by that point, I was involved with we called it the installations group. So we would go along, and we would speak to the team and say, you know, this is you know what the engine looks like today. Uh, what's your concept? What do you want to change? And and it was always, you know, every year it was different philosophy. It was changing, and, and that that kind of probably explains why they struggled. Uh, and I, I think, you know, when Red Bull took over, what they had, uh, the reason I think why they were so successful was consistency, just because they had the same people year in, year out, running the the operation. You know, Christian Horne has done a fantastic job, uh, and the same with Adrian Newey, and they had that one strategy, uh, and the, the owner, you know, obviously um, had that one goal to, to win championships, and they didn't, you know, when times are tough, they didn't get rid of people. They just persevered, and, and that's still there today. You can see that that um, that ethos today. So uh, that's that's, you know, it's been really interesting. I must one day I'll write a book maybe about you know Jaguar racing from the outside. But it um it was really interesting to watch the dynamics at play um, from from the outside as a supplier, if you like, to Jaguar racing
0: well i can imagine what i must have been like to see because you say jaguar weren't it wasn't run in the in the easiest way for sure um Mm. but during your time as well whilst jaguar were obviously the works team for cosworth you were still supplying other teams unfortunately sometimes they did go under arrows being the most notable of those in 2002 folding midway through the season Uh, can you give us an idea of how that affected cosworth and and how it how it happened from 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 your perspective and uh, the impact it had um, uh, overall on on formula one from your view as well
2: yeah i mean really uh, as a i mean cosworth was set up to supply customer teams and that was always you know right from the very beginning you know from 68 season it was you know supply of customer teams as fairly as possible uh and even on the dfe days uh every engine was the same that cosworth didn't make special engines for one team it was always And I've seen power figures, you know, to prove it. They they definitely didn't make more powerful engines for Lotus or for Williams or whoever. Um, And that that, that, uh, strategy carried on and through, you know, right through into the 2013. um, Supplying customer teams with as equal a spec as possible, um, making sure you don't favor one over the other. Um, But when you see the teams uh, in in trouble financially, it has huge repercussions throughout the industry. Uh, And I think people, you know, you can sympathize with the team. And obviously, there's people that are going to lose their jobs at the team. But it has a knock-on effect, you know, at people like Cosworth uh, and all the suppliers, you know, the hundreds of suppliers that supply bits into those teams um, so Cosworth was fairly strict in the sense of, of if you miss a payment, you don't run, and that that has to happen because if they get allowed to to, to build up a big pile of debt and then they go under, that's even worse. Um, so uh, this it, it, it's, is fairly simple. All you do is withhold the ECU. You say, well, you know, you don't get your ECUs to go racing until you've paid, uh, and magically the payments appear. So uh, it's quite stressful for the guys at the track because they don't know what they're doing and obviously it's very stressful for the team because if they don't go racing they don't get sponsorship they don't get paid so uh, it's uh, it's a difficult situation uh, internally as well you know uh, Cosworth you know was set up to supply customer teams uh, in some cases sometimes uh, it would actually create separate departments to do that so you'd have uh, so for the arrows team you mentioned um there was a separate department almost separate build shop um to, to build those engines. And obviously if that team goes under, all those people then are, are worried about their jobs. You know, they obviously think, well, even we were building our engines, they're not in existence anymore. Uh, I think thankfully Cosworth managed to to weather the storm and uh, try and uh, make sure that those people had other jobs to do. But uh, for an organisation even you know, as big as Cosworth, it's a huge effect if you take away one of the customer teams. Um, and you look back over the years, I think probably Cosworth's probably been part of most of the teams that fall over at some, you know, or that go bust. Were using Cosworth engines at that time. Uh, which is uh which I guess is, is the nature of you know the teams end up using customer engines and then they can't afford the bills and then that's where it all goes wrong. So we we see constantly that that pattern. Um sadly obviously I was it was, we'll come to later involved you know in the 2020 twenty, 20 thirteen when we were supplying the new teams and gradually one by one we saw those teams drop out as well. And that that's quite quite sad emotionally because you know those people have worked so hard to build those teams up, uh, and then you see them dropping off. Uh, it, it's um, it, it's quite a, a sad state of affairs to get to. Thankfully, I think Formula One's in much better shape. You know, the teams that they have today are financially more stable, uh, and they're all professional. You know, you don't see the Andrea Modas of of uh, of the '90s anymore. You do have proper running teams that look like they're all going to survive for the next few years.
0: I really want to do an episode on Andrea Moda one day. Oh, we need to yeah. do that. We need to do an episode on that team because they were brilliant. Andrea Moda were a team which folded after half a season. Trust me, we will do an episode on them because they were they were just unbelievable yeah. in all the all the wrong ways. Could be um, a short episode though.
2: Very yeah. true. Quite Gary, um, I've, I've seen a Williams uh, up for sale. FW, I think it was FW14, but it's actually an Andrea Moda that's been painted up to look like the Williams. So you oh could my. you could buy it. <laughs>
0: Wow! Yeah. Um, just before we move on, um, you said you mentioned the ECU. Uh, is that the electronic control unit? Obviously,
2: the, Sorry, the brain yes. of the engine. So, just, yeah, just yeah, it's, it's the kind of the, the not the black box, but it is actually a black box that sits on the back of the engine. Uh, normally, sits on the back of the trumpet tray, um, and it has all of the, uh, the, the the boards inside that will control how the engine operates. Um, so, without it, obviously, you're not going anywhere, and, and it's one of those parts as well that. We discovered, uh, you know, reliability wise, if, if something, if a board breaks or if something becomes unsoldered or, you know, within it, that's game over. So reliability wise, it's an incredibly crucial uh, part to get right.
1: So in 2010, uh, Cosworth was named as the engine supplier for three teams. Now, your role changed at this point from um, senior designer to operations manager. So what what were the duties um, in your role at that time? And what was it like to be back returning to the grid in F1? So when
2: I I actually... um Moved out of Formula One at the end of 2004. Same time as Chagras stopping actually um, to go and do some other projects. I was just I was I wouldn't say I was bored of Formula One, but I wanted to do something different. And there were loads of projects on within Cosworth. Um, so I became a project manager and started project managing some other projects. And then when um, when Cosworth came back into Formula One, I was given the job of project manager for for that activity. Um, uh, so. We started around the middle of 2009, I think, which is when it all became official. Um, I can't remember when when all the teams were announced, but we were still dealing with the inquiries from other teams. Um, So if you think sort of June, July 2009, we were given the green light. We started from scratch pretty much. We didn't have any uh, inventory. We certainly didn't have engines, you know, boxed up from 2006. And the rules had changed anyway from 06. So 06, there was, I don't think it was a speed limit. Um, 2010, there was. It was 18,000 RPM. Um, and I think the engine life had been increased. So I think we was we were uh, eight engines per season, for per driver. So there was a lot of work to do. To get the the reliability up, there's a lot of work to do. It sounds simple, you know. If you if you were at twenty thousand RPM and you come down to eighteen, you think, well, that's easy because you're you well within it. But actually, the the issue I mentioned before of torsional um, resonance within the components. Uh, most components have um, various modes of torsional frequencies uh, or of vibration, sorry, and they have natural frequencies that are different and you end up running through some of those natural frequencies as you go up the rev range. So the danger is you drop the top speed from 20,000 to 18, but what you end up doing is running into one of those torsional frequencies. So part of the activity that Cosworth did was to to make sure that if you did run into those, you weren't going to break anything. Um, The the engine was called the CA. Uh, It had I think it had 17 different torsional uh, frequencies Things that stopped it stopped it from uh, sorry stop the torsional resonance. So there were things like um, quills on the gear train that could flex. There was uh, quills in the cams that could flex. There were viscous dampers, all sorts of things that were designed to stop the engine from going into resonance. And and those those things were tuned, you know, to to make sure that running at the lower speed wasn't going to cause you an issue. Um, so so yeah, so we we had six months to define that spec and also then build the engines. Uh, um, back then we had winter testing so 2010 I think probably January I think there was I think there were three tests that teams wanted to run at so we had to have team engines built all to that signed off spec all the same because as I mentioned before we wanted all the engines to be the same uh, and on top of that you then also have to work with the teams to say you know this is the size of the engine this is what you're getting Um, back then so we were supplying uh Williams Williams were Effectively, they weren't the works team, but they were effectively, you know, the, the the outfit that knew what they were doing. And they were the ones that we had the most chance of success with. Um, but we also had, uh, I think they were called Virgin, uh, Lotus and uh, Espana or HRT and then USF1. So we were actually geared up to supply five teams. Um, that was our intention. Uh, so we had to have five teams worth of winter test engines ready for the beginning of 2010 um so so yeah really demanding i think we worked out we'd built 50 engines uh over that period you know over sort of a two month period leading up to to 2010 once we've got the specs signed off um so that's you know a huge amount of effort to go from scratch you know was was you know get back people that had left cosworth uh and also take on new people um and then be able to ramp up production that quickly was a huge effort uh, definitely not a winter I want want to relive but um we but we did it we got there
1: I mean, that, 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 that's incredible. You talk about getting those people back. Obviously, you, you, uh, I imagine it to be quite a closed industry where you've, you've got your experts and, mm. and they're very, um, you know, very, very skilled in particular areas. Just to give us an idea, how many, how many people are we talking? So you're, you're supplying to three different engine manufacturers. Obviously, you've got to design, build, manage, and then you know, work with those teams ongoing. So how many, how many people uh, were part of
2: that? Surprisingly, not not many, as it turns out. Um, we we had, um, I mean, if you think in build, I think we probably had about uh, sort of twelve or thirteen people, and then on the engineering side, there was probably maybe four of us doing that you know, in terms mm-hmm. of the reliability side. Uh, I should say, you know, there was a whole team of other people defining the spec of the engine and making sure that it was going to last and redesigning parts, um, and we also had to homologate the engine as well. So we had to. Um, you know, work with the FIA to um, to make sure that, that we complied with the new rules, because they had changed, um, and then submit our you know, sealed engine uh, or sealed box with the engine in and all the drawings to say, this is it, this is our spec. So back then there was a freeze, design freeze. Um, so we were given a, an exemption because obviously we didn't have an engine from 2009 to carry over. So we were given an exemption to develop the 2006 engine to match the rules but uh, we couldn't do anything, you know, that would give us an unfair advantage over other people that were coming from 2009 to 2010. So uh, we had to do that, and so that was also one of our jobs that we had to do.
1: It's it's fascinating. Do you do you just provide the engine and then leave them to it? How does that sort
2: of <laughs> aftercare service work? Yeah, well, well, again, again, it comes back to the the relationship you have with the team and also their maturity. So Williams, yeah, you. you Almost, you know, Williams were leading us in some cases saying, do this, do that. You know, they'd obviously worked, uh, I think they were with Toyota the year before. So, uh, and BMW before that, so that with those rules. So, they, they were well aware of the V8 rules and what you could and couldn't do. So, they were great. They gave us lots of advice. Uh, it's the other way around with the, the new teams, you know, teams like Virgin uh, and HRT and Lotus. They didn't know necessarily what what to do in that sense. So we gave them, this is where you gave them, gave them the, the drawings, give them the information. Um, and uh, Mark Gallagher, who was uh, on your podcast, uh, was my boss. Uh, and Mark uh, has a great experience with teams, knows how they operate. And I remember, you know, I was the project manager uh, and he said, well, what we do, we'll, we'll every week, we'll write a little newsletter for them so they can see this week we've, we've signed off the engine on the dyno to you know to the life limit we want and you know the first three engines are in build here's some pictures of it so we do a little a4 newsletter and he always said that those new teams they're in a world of pain you know they're they're going to be last minute you know if they can make it at all so we want to be the least of their problems we want to be the one that they don't keep ringing up saying where's my engine know well, how are you getting on so just just keep them updated keep them happy uh, and then we would, uh, I think, again, each team, again, was slightly different in the way they operated. So HRT, I think, were, were, oh, it was Delara, wasn't it? They were having their car built by Dallara. Um, But then Mirush, or Virgin, as it was, and Lotus were building their own chassis. So we would have to go along. Uh, so, so one there was uh, four of us working, one, one allocated to each team. And we would go along to the, their factory once a week and sit down with their engineers and define... the the size of the radiators or what the fuel tank size needs to be uh, or not in Virgin's case, I think they had a small problem with that. Um, and we would uh, try and help them. Um, USF1 was a completely different kettle of fish because uh, they, didn't, they didn't get that far, sadly. Um, would have been a really interesting team to work with. And again, a different strategy, you know, based in America. But sadly, uh, they, they didn't come to, to be. Um, and again, we, we still had to maintain our side of the deal. So we had to build their engines. Uh, I think there were three winter test engines built for them. Because uh, we didn't want to be the reason why they didn't go racing, so even though we could see, you know, you you could compare their progress to the other teams, you knew there was no way they they were going to make it. We still had to have their engines built, and and the funny thing is, I was. Working, uh, well, the, the the guy that used to do all the engine deals at Cosworth, um, great guy called Bernard Ferguson, uh, he was working for USF One, kind of poacher term gamekeeper. So he was on the other side and he was hassling me for where my engines are. You know, it was, uh, it was quite a, a weird situation to be in.
0: So moving on from from that side, from the USF One to HRT's demise, um, yeah. they collapsed mid season, unfortunately. Um, can you talk us through the final few weeks of that team's existence? Because they were, uh, yeah, yeah, they were tough. They were, they, they, they were a team that really tried <laughs> and aspired to work to, to get to where they wanted to be, but it just never truly seemed to happen for them, did it?
2: From yeah, it outside. was a, it's a real shame because they they showed little flashes of of promise. You know, they obviously they started off on the back foot. They had the Delara chassis, but I think there was lots of issues with owners uh, or ownership changing hands and and running out of money. Um, but they they certainly looked like they were going in the right direction at one point they kind of became uh, I'm trying to remember their sort of timeline. You know, they got t- uh, run briefly by Colin Collis. And I think they were also running Red Bull drivers. Um, so they were getting paid to run Red Bull drivers like Daniel Ricciardo. And I do remember actually, you know, we were um, under the under the hammer quite a lot because they were saying you know, if an engine stops, you know, on the track or, you know, we can't run the engine, that means we can't run a Red Bull driver, which means we don't get paid. If we don't get paid, you don't get paid. So it was, there was a, definitely an, uh, a certain... Uh, pressure to get their reliability, you know. Um, and once we'd uh kind of, you know, made sure that we had the reliability right, you know, we were we were fine. I think HRT's final season, there wasn't a single minute of of lost time due to Cosworth, so which is almost unheard of, you know, as an engine supplier. Um but uh but they I know at one point I think they had a Spanish um factory built and they were going to have a design office. I think Jeff Willis was recruited. So he he popped along and we met him and he seemed to be quite quite uh hopeful of it all turning around. And then sadly as you said, yeah, I think 2011, I think they got to the end of the season. I don't I think they, they managed to make it to the last race. But um but that was it at the end of the uh, 2012, sorry, the end of that year, that was it. They were they were out. And uh, it, again it comes back to the 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 knock-on effect, you know, Cosworth. uh made sure that they were paying regular instalments. So there they weren't there wasn't a financial loss to Cosmos really at, at that point when they went under, but you structured, you know, you're geared up to supply that team. You take that team out of your um equation and suddenly, you know, you've got a hole that you know you need to fill. So so we were able to 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 fill that gap. But um but it was uh it was, again quite sad to see a a team that had come into formula one disappear
1: so talking of paying the bills matt um we need to take a quick pause to pay our bills um so when we're back on the um other side we're going to talk about your current role which is extremely exciting Okay, so um, Matt, let's talk about um, Mototec. Can you give us a rundown of what Mototec is? Um, because it's it's very exciting if you are a Formula Nerd, um, and um, what it is that
2: you do there. Yes, yeah, it's, uh, it's um, uh, we've been going for about eight nine years. So as you said, I left um, twenty thirteen when once Formula One had stopped, once um, the new rules kicked in, there was it was clear that Cosworth didn't have a new engine, uh, you know, the V six turbo. Interestingly, they did make the I4, which um, there was a the initial rule was going to be for an I4, um, which uh, never never materialised. The rule never uh, got finalised, but Cosworth did actually build an I4 engine. But the V6 turbo was just a step too far. I think we I was part of the team that looked at the feasibility of doing it and talking to potential customers. Uh, and I think you know our potential customers would have been people like Marusha and uh, and possibly Caterham as they were then. So uh, sadly, those teams obviously ran into problems. So that wouldn't that wouldn't have worked. Um, so so yeah. So I left 2013. Um, I did a few contract jobs. So you know, when you're a contract engineer, you just sort of pitch up at companies and you help out designing stuff. Uh, and I did a great stay at RML Ray Malik uh, Limited, uh, working for an old friend of mine, a guy called Arne Martin. Uh, they were running a z which was this um, crazy electric car that ran at Le Mans with a, a hybrid car, but it could run full electric. Uh, so we did that for a few months. Um, and, and then I should sort of backtrack a bit. During my time at Cosworth, uh, towards the end of my stay at Cosworth, uh, I got into the historic side. I really started to to read up on the historic side. And I'm ashamed to say when I started, I wasn't that interested in DFEs or you know the background to the company because you're so focused on the day-to-day stuff and what the future is bringing. You don't really look back. Um, but uh, in that sort of the final couple of years, I had chance to to look back. Uh, I helped um, another guy. We sorted out the, the drawing archive uh, that Cosworth had, and you start to read some of the the, the history behind everything. Uh, and uh, Cosworth had schemes of the of the DFE you know, when it was first uh, designed in 66 before it ran the following year, and the doodles between Keith Duckworth and Colin Chapman of, you know, where the suspension pickup points should be. And um, I mean, one of the great anecdotes is that the the mounting points at the bottom of the DfE, the front bit where it sticks into the back of the tub, is, is the width of Jim Clark's bottom. You know, those the great <laughs> stories like those yeah. that, that are kind of, you know, scrawled across bits of paper. And, and uh, so, so I really took an interest in the historic side. So when... Um, You know, the the final year, 2013, we were just running in Russia. uh, and or manner as it was then called um so i had a bit of spare time so i said can i start you know helping out with some of the historic stuff and they said yeah that's great so we started just you know helping people with dfes and a few other engines um and then when i left uh and i was doing contract work and people were ringing me up saying can you get hold of uh you know can you get hold of a spark box for an hb which is the you know the benetton mclaren engine or can you can you help me get these pistons manufactured um I thought, well, yeah, I'd love to. So I spoke to Cosworth. They said, yeah, that's what you, you can become our official distributor for all these sorts of parts. Um, and that's how we got going. So myself and my wife, um, we kind of uh, started at MotorTech supplying Cosworth engine parts. Uh, and, you know, that's what we do today. That's our, sort of our uh, main business is, is supplying parts. Uh, and, and, again, it's kind of, it's a fantastic thing to be able to go back. Uh, work on those bits. You know, sometimes we're supplying bits I designed, or I helped with. You know, 20, 25 years ago. Like I said, I get to work on Jaguar cars. There's, just, you know, a few other customers running engines that I've worked on, and I can do it again today, uh, and still, still do it. I can live the life of a of a 25 year old designer occasionally.
1: So is, is your is your wife also um a, a, an absolute F1 car lover.
2: She yeah she is yeah before we met she was uh, she knew she knew about formula 1 she watched it. Uh a funny story she had a Sierra uh when we met and um and I, she had a Ford Sierra and I had um uh, you know a, a little bit of interest in the, in the the Sierra of old you know and I said to I jokingly said to her one day I'll get you a Cosworth badge you know, for the back of your Sierra. And then well, sadly the Sierra died not long after we made it, kind of ended up in the, the scrapyard in the sky. But uh as part of what we do today, you know, we have the, the the drawings for that engine, and one of the drawings is of the badge. So I cut out the badge and gave her the badge. So it's 20 years late, but here you go. It's <laughs> <Here's> the <laughs> badge <brilliant>. your Sierra. <laughs> yeah, point. so so yeah, she's she's uh she's also very, very interested in racing, so it's great. Mm.
0: Oh, fantastic. I mean, you talk about the car parts that you design now for, for Cosworth. Do you have a set collection of cars that you also look after?
2: Yeah, we, we, we cover all sorts. I mean, we go from from the beginning of Cosworth in 58 when they were building what they called the, the Mark I, you know, Mark II, Mark III Mark series of engines based on the Ford Anglia, right through to uh, BD, which is the belt-driven Type A. So it's to show my geekiness. that uh, was doing the Escorts and the YBs that were in the Sierras and the Escorts. So we do those, and we cover the FEs, uh, and then we cover the most recent engines. So even up to the CA that ran up to 2013, we provide parts for those. So we, we don't run the cars, but we help people run the cars. So we or you know we we kind of um, hopefully again, and it goes back to what Mark Gallagher said: with the least of their problems, you know, we we hopefully help help them sort out all the issues that they've got with running an engine, building an engine, running it, and maintaining it.
1: I mean, th- th- these engines are extremely b- bespoke, right? And, and there can't be many people on earth that can do what you do or have the knowledge to do what you do. I mean, h- how much is, is this your whole life's work coming into right now? <laughs> now I'm the guy that can sort this out. I mean, it, it, I, it, I can't imagine being able to to have as much knowledge in in, in this area as, as someone like yourself.
2: Yeah, it's... Um it definitely I couldn't have done this 20 years ago, for example, because I didn't have the knowledge uh or the experience. When I started at Cosworth, I probably uh wouldn't have wouldn't wouldn't have been known one end of an engine from another. Cosworth definitely trains you how to do all that stuff. Um so I needed to to have that experience to build up and to have worked on some of those projects to be able to support people. Um what I also do is I write articles um for a magazine called Race Engine Technology. So I write uh about Oh, sort of seven or eight pages for them every issue uh, well, actually more than that we do it twice now so so I do two of those articles every issue and the reason I do that uh, is to learn so we write about subjects that I might not necessarily know much about but by the time we've written you know 5,000 words on a subject you start to learn and we work with um, the suppliers for those parts or those services so I get to learn an awful lot um, and that, that again really helps me help our customers so uh, give an example. You know, we we supply bearings. Um, I've written articles about bearings. I've designed bearings in the past, but never really understood them. But writing the articles and working with companies to explore their materials means that when I sell bearings, I can speak with some confidence that I know those are the best bearings you're going to get. And uh, and that's been a real. You know, if someone wants to learn something, read a book definitely. But even better, write. Try and write a book because it's uh, it really pushes you to the to the limits of your knowledge.
1: Matt, you remind me of myself. If I if I want to know something, I just go all out into one yeah. thing.
0: Uh, it's <laughs> absolutely the way that my mind works. Yeah, I'll confess, I'm probably the same in, in that mindset as well. <laughs> I think Finally. we all are, aren't we? <laughs> if I want to know yeah. something, I will go all out and research until yeah. I know it as much
2: as I can, realistically. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I love seeing what Craig Scarborough does because, um, you know, he he doesn't have that background. He didn't work in a team. But he goes out and understands how stuff works by drawing it, and you know, you see his doodles and his— are uh, not doodles, are they? They're proper illustrations that he does. But mm-hmm. that's how he learns how how things all work in Formula One. That's just fantastic.
1: Yeah, when, when we ha- we we had Craig on on the podcast, and I was sitting there, and it's just the way I think because of that, he's got the ability to explain things in a way that I understand, not being an engineer myself. So it, it's Craig, Craig's a heck of a man. So yeah,
0: yeah, yeah very interesting indeed well the next question I've got is actually um, you could say it's more me digging for a bit of insider information if you like so it's more along lines of: how often do the cars that have these engines run and more importantly when's the next one so we can hear them in all their glory uh,
2: you're, you're after free tickets aren't you everyone's after free well, tickets well or,
0: or, or maybe just know when the meeting is <laughs>
2: yeah yeah no it's um, I mean like I said because we cover such a wide range these engines are running all the time um, you know we have customers in Japan and Australia New Zealand so they're running all over the world, all over the time. And if you think of Cosmos history in, what is it now, 63 years old? 65, no, 65 years old. It's it's one of those companies that's always been providing engines. Um, so there are, I mean, we cover probably 25 engine projects that all have different, you know, different customers, different types of customers. Some are racing them in the BOSS series, which is the, I think, I can't remember what it stands for now, but it's kind of a place where, sort of formula one cars from 2000s get to race you know which is you know which is great that's how they should be how they should be driven um and then there's events like the Silverstone Classic um I think we went there once and there were somewhere 80 percent of the cars had Cosworth engines in or some relationship to Cosworth and you think yeah I'm, this is the, definitely the right place to be yeah the Silverstone Classic so so those sorts of events uh, are really good if you want to see uh, a Cosworth engine running flat chat, and, and then there are other other things like um, race retro, um, the show, uh, auto sport. Um, there's all sorts of shows where people will be demonstrating their engines and their cars and then you get into people that own engines like the yb those guys are just passionate about their cars you know the sierras and the escorts and the sapphires they, they they're they a better state than when they came off the production line i'm sure and those guys go to shows so we help uh, a club called the cosmos drivers club which is a facebook group um and their guys are more knowledgeable probably than people that you know, design the engines and cars back in the first place um it's uh it's uh, and again it feels almost you know you sometimes you think wow you're pinching yourself because you're working with some of these people that are that ran the cars back in periods you know some of the racing drivers we get to work with occasionally um i remember uh back in before well when i was still at cosworth actually like i said dabbling in historics um, we went along to the uh, Goodwood Festival of Speed and uh, we were um, running the soapbox. So so it was an anniversary special from, a, from a, a previous event that Goodwood ran where they ran soapboxes that Cosworth built and Williams and Rolls-Royce and a few other people. And we were lucky enough uh, the first time to have Barry Sheen drive the soapbox, ride the soapbox, whatever you do with the soapbox, down the hill. Um, so we came back for this 10th year anniversary, 2013. Uh, and uh, one of uh, Cosworth staff drove it down the hill. Um, but you then got a driver's club pass. So we will all borrow that driver's club pass and we'll all go and use it to get into the restaurant. And uh, suddenly you rub his shoulders. I got to meet with Emerson Fittipaldi and John Surtees and some of these great names. So you think I'd never get the chance to to talk to them and I started talking to John Surtees for ages and I was saying to him you know what what we do you know we um this is when I was at Cosford you know with you know, resurrecting some of the historic parts and uh he gave me a bit of an ear bashing he said well I, you know Keith Duckworth sold me these magnesium cylinder heads and all the all the seats fell out I've still got them I want my money back, <laughs> and then <he's, laughs> his right smile goes across his face. And you're like, ah, okay, it's a wind windup. <laughs> okay. Everyone else on the table is laughing. Yeah. So, but to meet those kind of people it's fantastic, you know. And that's what historic racing does. Historic. These guys love to talk about their their their, their history and what they did, and to be able to talk to them about it is fantastic. It would, it's a real honour sometimes to be able to to supply those parts and to work with those people brilliant I
0: mean you talk about Cosworth's you say 60 plus year history so our penultimate question is what is your favorite engine and car from Cosworth do you have a particular soft spot for any car from the period from all the times you've worked in F1 or other areas? What, what is your
2: absolute favorite? Oh, wow. How long have you got? It could be, a, it could go on forever. <laughs> on my list probably the best, the best engine I ever worked on and the best time at Cosworth uh was called the CK, which ran in 1999. So it was the Stewart SF3, um which won a race um, and I think got one or two poles. Uh, And it kind of, that was, you know, I mentioned, you know, that the first couple of years with Stuart were a bit stressful reliability-wise. In 99, it all came good. Um, When I started at Cosworth, um, there were a few people like me that didn't have any background in engine design. And I think that was deliberate. I think the people that that ran the group, a guy called Nick Hayes, um, they wanted people that didn't have experience necessarily so they weren't going to be um, you know come in with all these uh, ideas but they'd start to see what was going on and then think out of the box and that's what the CK was it was it was a complete you know revolution if you like in terms of the engine design um, and we we had all sorts of great things on that engine so I had um, the beam head structure so which is a, a sort of vertical wall that ran down the length of the head to give it stiffness and then there were finger followers mounted to this beam um, which kind of turned it through 90 degrees, which is a really clever idea. Um, there were things like carbon cam covers. So if you if you look back at uh, the first race of SF3 in, in Australia, and both stewards were smoking on the grid and they had to stop the race, that was the carbon cam covers that were leaking oil, which uh, turned out to be because the, te- the team had never qualified that far up the grid and didn't realise they had to sit on the grid for an extra 30 seconds and that was what overheated the engines and caused the smoke and the, the cam covers to break down um and then in my group you know the things i was doing um you know i did uh cranks with heavy metal weights which uh which came back to bite me because they came off but we fixed it um so those sorts of ideas that that we could all do and and if you go from the 98 engine to the ck 99 we took 30 kilos out of the engine which is a huge amount you know imagine 30 kilos. We actually had a, a weight made to represent 30 kilos, a big block of aluminium just to show people. And, uh, and it was just, uh, an incredible atmosphere. Um, that engine ran on the dyno, I think like three days before Christmas, um so we all uh probably shouldn't say it from a health and safety point of view we all went down the pub uh (laughs) tonight it was going to run and then came back we weren't we were obviously very responsible but came back and and ran the engine on the dyno at sort of 11 12 o'clock at night with all our partners there watching it run and then the car ran for the first time christmas eve 98. uh so we all went down to silverstone to watch it run around silverstone and just a fantastic experience to watch something you've worked on you know come to fruition um Watching any engine that you've designed run on the dyno for the first time is a great experience. I used to liken it to um, it must be like you know when a baby's born. Having had two two daughters born is nothing like um, when the baby's born, but you still get that that sense of achievement that you've actually you know you've you've made something and it's running and you're seeing it for the very first time running. Um, So, so yeah, I'd say CK 99 and the results that followed, you know, the fact that they won the race and it gave, I I think it gave Ford the the confidence, if you like, to start up Jagger racing and to to invest more heavily.
1: I mean, it, it, it's it's fascinating, everything that you've um, you've shared with us. And, you know, like you said, we how long do we have? Uh, but we're approaching uh, the maximum time that we have got. But there is one very special question, which all of our listeners will know. Um, we own a motorsport time machine. We built it ourselves. You'll be very impressed. I'm not sharing the design. <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to invite you into it. And you can go backwards, forwards, anywhere you want in this motorsport time machine. Um, to go somewhere in motorsport that you would like to re- either revisit or, or have experienced. So um in you get and where are you off to? Wow.
2: Um yeah, so I uh I mean I've heard your previous podcast and you, you throw that question at guests. And I often wonder if maybe the answer is to the time you fell in love with Formula One. And maybe it is, but mm. so for me it definitely it, it probably would be. Um I I'd, I got into Formula One when I was about 12, so about 83, 84. No idea why. I don't know what, what it was that that made me suddenly become a fanatic for for following it. Um, and then the first Grand Prix I went to was at Silverstone in 87, which is the Mansell, you know, the uh, the dummy overtake on PK and uh, you know, and the crowd going mental and probably the first signs of Mansell mania. Uh, and that was just such an amazing race to go to. So I definitely would want to go back there. I'd probably want to go back there and have a grandstand seat because I was sat on the banking at, at Maggots as it was. So sat there for six hours before the race started. Uh, and probably sit in the grandstand this time or even better, work in in the pit lane um but then as well you could go before the race you could go and walk down the pit lane for 10 pounds you could get a, a little ticket that lets you go down the pit lane and um and, and I'm, I'm proud to stay I was, I was walking down the pit lane and all these the crowds suddenly started pointing at me and i'm thinking well wow this is great you know everyone knows me already hey uh and they were pointing at me and then suddenly I walked into this guy and I looked around, and he was wearing yellow overalls. I thought, oh, how could I miss this guy in yellow overalls? <laughs> and, it, and it was Ayrton Senna. And I was like, well, oh. yeah. and he actually he actually apologised to me. He said, oh, I'm sorry. And then he carried on, and the crowd, you know, you could see them all laughing at this point, probably. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but yeah. So and you, you you definitely can't get that experience anymore. So um, that that was a really good year. I went back the next year, 88, and the the because I guess the 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 track invasion they'd put up all these fences so you couldn't get onto the track and you couldn't get into the pit lane and uh, i i did um i did i must confess i tried to break in uh into the, the pit lane um i had been applying to lots of f1 teams for the last sort of three or four years before that i've kept all the rejection letters i've even got one from ross Braun which i'm i should put on the wall one day <laughs> frame it <laughs> um, um yeah and uh and so i tried to get in and i had a rejection letter from arrows and uh, and I folded it up so it looked like it was a you know please come and see us kind of letter and it was from Alan Jenkins who was the designer at the time, uh, and I showed it to the security guard and said look I've got a letter from Alan Jenkins I've got to meet him, and the guy says yeah come on through and he said oh hang on a minute let me have a look at that, he read it and it you know reads like a dear John letter it's kind of like you know it's it's not <laughs> you it's it's us you know we can't take on people <laughs> right okay great so I okay. get. You know get turfed out and then funnily enough 10 years later like i said i'm working with uh uh, with stuart bonfrey and alan jenkins like you know in a meeting with him i tell him the story and he just laughs and says, "Well, if, if we'd had mobile phones, you could have rang me, and I'd come and got you. Yeah, what a what a what a shame! What a missed opportunity!"
1: There, there is something beautiful, though. I mean, I, I, I've done obviously Silverstone, camping, spa, all of this. When when you're really, you know, you're sitting on the muddy hill when the when the heavens <laughs> open, there's something. There is something romantic about it. I think you know. There, there's definitely but, two sides to F1. There's the glamorous side, and then there's what I used to call the real side. But um, yes, no, it, <laughs> it's 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 wonderful. Thank you for your answer there. And that's all we've got time for. I, I've absolutely loved it.
2: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a, a pleasure to, to talk about it. Um, hopefully, you know, what, what I'm trying to do nowadays is try and promote um, engineering as well, especially uh, within schools uh, and trying to also help, you know, um, get everybody involved in motorsport, so so male and female. So trying to um, broaden the, the, um, the interest in engineering so that we get more people involved, really.
1: And uh, if, if, is there any way that our listeners can, can, can look you up, get involved?
2: Yeah, sure. So um, so our website is modatek, dot Um So you just uh, type that in or Google us, um, and you can see what sort of things we do. Uh, and I'm on LinkedIn. I try and be active, as you can, on LinkedIn. And uh, we have a Facebook page and an Instagram page as well. So, um, so yeah, just feel free to, to connect up. Um, and hopefully, I mean, people, when they see what we do and the, the parts we supply and the, some of the engines and projects we work on, I think I think people are genuinely quite interested in, in what we do.
1: Yes, I mean, it, it is fascinating. So uh, thank you very much, Matt Grant. And uh, James, thank you for
0: joining us. No, thank you very much for having me. All This has been really enjoyable. Thank you. I can
1: see by your face you've really been enjoying yourself <laughs> for the last hour. <laughs>
0: Formula One, techie Formula One stuff, historic Formula One stuff, I'm sold. It's great.
1: (laughs) Uh, Matt, thanks again. Let's keep in touch and uh, yeah, we'll speak soon. Yeah, thank you. You're listening to the Cut to the Race podcast. It's lights out
2: and away we we go. Sports Social Podcast Network.